Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Suite 212 sessions. As those of you who've listened to previous episodes will know, our plan to relaunch Suite 212 as a fortnightly show with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes were put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. Instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers and others about their work conducted via Skype. So apologies in advance for the diminished audio quality and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and beyond in the 21st century through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them and how the socio-economic conditions of the time have affected their practices. All of these will be made available for free via SoundCloud, but I still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet 212 as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet 212 Today, I'm talking to visual artist and filmmaker Arit Ashery. Born in Jerusalem in 1966 and educated at Sheffield Hallam University in Central St. Martins, Arit Ashery is a transdisciplinary visual artist who navigates established institutional and grassroots arts and social contexts. The work engages with biopolitical fiction, autoethnography, gender materiality and potential communities. Ashery's practice manifests through distinct multi-platform large-scale projects that span moving image, live situations, performance, assemblage and writing. Incorporating costume, new music and sound commissions and activism, Ashery's practice is often collaborative, participatory and questions the modes and conditions of art production. Ashfree won the Jarman Award in 2017 for the web series Revisiting Genesis, interfacing documentary and fiction and looking at the emergent field of death, dying and the digital. More recently, a book called How We Die is How We Live Only More So has been published about her work, featuring new writing by Rizvana Bradley, TJ Demos, Mason Lever Yap, George Vasey and others. A new film entitled Dying Under Your Eyes was commissioned by the Welcome Collection as part of an exhibition of Ashfree's work alongside that of British artist Joe Spence, which was held last year. So Arit, welcome to Suite 212. Hi Juliet, it's nice to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, we've been trying to get you on the show for a while, and it's really nice to have you here as part of this series, which, as I said in the introduction, was devised and has been recorded as a response specifically to the COVID-19 crisis and the lockdown and some of the social changes that have been taking place as a result. Something you've contributed to and something I'll be contributing to soon is a series of short articles that have been published by the Harren Faraki Institute in Germany in collaboration with the Journal for Visual Culture, all of which are responding in one way or another to what's been going on and other contributors have included uh, Pill and Gallia Collective, but your piece was very striking. Uh, it's called We've Been Preparing for This Our Whole Lives. And in some ways it touches on a lot of the themes that we're going to talk about today. So I wonder if you'd like to start the show by reading this piece. Sure, thank you, Juliet. I wrote it right at the start. So I wrote it perhaps two weeks into the lockdown, which now seems like history. So it has that sense of emergency and a sense of crisis about it that I, I believe we're still living through, but more with a, a kind of a shock to the system than we have now. So yeah, it's called, uh, we've been preparing for this our whole lives. Visually, it looks like a list and, and every sentence starts with fingers crossed emoji, 
existing daily with a conscious presence of death that measures liveness and life under oppression. Knowing that belonging is everything, particularly when out of reach and in pieces. Playing equal parts in democratic support groups and international networks that serve our recovery daily and exists for decades. Living in a constant state of productive grief. Practicing gratitude within and outside the remits of privilege. Dealing always with hypochondria, general anxiety, trauma, neglectful deaths, chronic illness, underlying fear, and by always, I mean for generations, summoning ancestral ghosts. Sharing affinities and solidarity with the service workers for as long as we can remember. We don't survive without them, and celebrities are nothing but a good distraction from codependency. Loving friends and chosen family actively. According to myth, we choose our biological family too. Acknowledging that how we die is how we live, only more so, and owing that lineage, Palestinian solidarity movement, and Black Lives Matter, and queer death. Sickening by extraction capitalism in the body, sustaining stillness for parts of the action, endorsing solitude, making work about withdrawal out of necessity, soft resistance, recovering tools with complex PTSD, researching creep theories, politicized self-care and survivance, which is survival plus resistance, written by Younger, refining our politics to a tooth while remaining open to changing our minds. Taking things for granted was never an option. That's for normal. We survivors were born for this crisis. Written during lockdown, London, March 2020. Thanks for that. I really like that you have the, the date on there, situating the piece, as you say, within a very specific moment of the lockdown. That was about maybe less than two weeks in. And it's a very prescient piece for several reasons. I mean, one is that you reference the Palestinian struggle and Black Lives Matter and queer movements. And all three of those things have become increasingly salient during this sort of global stoppage. During the COVID crisis, the Israelis have been making moves to take further territory in Palestine or make the prospect of even a two-state solution less plausible. Obviously, the Black Lives Matter movement has sprung up all over the world, but particularly in the States and very prominently here in the UK as well, partly in response to the fact that the COVID-19 crisis has disproportionately killed people of colour and there are socioeconomic and structural reasons for that. And obviously in Britain, there has been a report written about this, which the government has suppressed. And queer movements too. Just this week, the Romanian government banned gender studies in universities, uh, echoing a move made by Viktor Orban in Hungary a couple of years ago. Orban in Hungary has rescinded gender recognition during the crisis as part of turning Hungary into more or less a dictatorship under the cover of the COVID-19 lockdown. And this rescinding of gender recognition works retroactively as well. It's a staggeringly cruel piece of legislation. In Britain, of course, Liz Truss has talked about abandoning the planned reforms to the Gender Recognition Act after the consultation that was held in 2018 and actually making it much more difficult for trans and non-binary people to occupy any sort of public space, claiming cover of the 10-year-old Equality Act which protects certain single-sex spaces, largely in order to protect sort of gentlemen's clubs along the lines of Stringfellows, actually. That was kind of why that 
that was there. So it's a very prescient piece in that respect, but I think it also speaks a lot to the themes in your work and the ways in which certain socially engaged artists live that equipped us to deal with this crisis because you know we're quite used to living with precarity with diminishing employment prospects and diminishing job security but we're also used to spending a lot of time on our own being very reflective and confronting a lot of the most difficult aspects of human existence head on and of course you know we're living in this pandemic that just in the United Kingdom has killed 60,000 people this year. You know, worldwide, of course, the figure is far, far higher. And, you know, the full horror of this moment is a very, very difficult thing to confront. And it's very hard to confront it all the time because psychologically it's, it's just not sustainable to do that. But, you know, I think it's very interesting to talk to you at this particular moment because your work has dealt so much with death and dying and remembrance. And I'd like to lead on here to talk about your most recent film, Dying Under Your Eyes, which was commissioned by the Wellcome Collection as part of this exhibition alongside the work of Joe Spence. So I'll have some more questions, but maybe you could just start off by telling our listeners what Dying Under Your Eyes was about and how you made it. Uh, yeah, firstly, uh, thank you for such an uh, empathic and accurate reading of your own reading of my writing. And it, it's always nice to feel kind of accurately reflected in someone else's understanding of um, what I say, what, you know, what we all say. So uh, thank you for that. Yeah, so Dine Under Your Eyes was commissioned by the Welcome Collection as part of the exhibition Misbehaving Bodies, which featured works by Joe Spence and myself. It, it was really within that context, looking at illness and death, that I was uh, thinking of making the film. The film is a little bit like being an investigator, kind of following the death of my father in 2018. It's something that happened quite quickly. He fell and died within a month and the whole family structure changed within that month and I was trying to make sense of it. I used ready-made footage that I have on my phone I wasn't planning to make a film. I never really planned this film. It was never meant to be as such. I was documenting and filming my dad for years, uh, as we all do, I guess. And partly because he lived in Jerusalem, I lived in London, so the distance and proximity. So whenever I would see him, I would document him. Also because in recent years, he became, he was never diagnosed officially, but he became probably kind of experiencing some form of dementia. So he would go into um, long monologues, but also he would do these amazing things where he would just literally sing the whole newspaper. So he would just sing the whole newspaper from beginning to end. It was highly performative. And I think within that, there was also a little bit of a, a kind of some form of, I don't want to kind of give it any medical name but he would be very high and then very low so he'll be kind of ecstatically singing the newspaper but underneath that there was a lot of anxiety about aging and about dying which that, that sort of underlying invisible anxiety and sense of something is about to happen is what I try to convey in the sound the commission sound 
so yeah, I took, I took footage that I had from six years ago and up until including uh, the time of his death and edited together into a version of events, chronological events. It's a story that has a beginning, middle and end. And uh, it's intersection, there, there are intersections with film footage, constructed footage um, of my niece and her sister performing kind of otherworldly rituals that for me were kind of representing his subconscious world. For example, he would be, I mean, he, he would kind of take, you know, a kitchen roll and cut it in half to make two toilet papers, you know, for no reason. It doesn't really save money or anything. Or there's something about sort of interacting with the technologies, a simple technology of like knife cutting, um, the structure in which toilet paper takes or, or kitchen paper. And then every night in the last year of his life, he went to the, this kind of uh, balcony because he said that he was hearing angels singing to him. And for me, it was obvious that the angels were calling him to come. It was a call for his um, death. So uh, all those kind of rituals I was trying to represent with my niece and uh, Gil and her sister Maya. I mean, one of the most interesting points in the film for me and something I really kind of picked out is there are moments where you um, dress up as your father and reenact his fall and you also reenact him kind of reading and singing from the newspaper. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about like why you did that. Um, yeah, so I, I used to dress in my dad's clothes since I was a teenager. And I guess it was a certain kind of armour. I mean... Culturally, I was out and about probably when it was um, not safe as a, as a younger girl. And I was groped a lot. I was kind of harassed. So, so, so my kind of child, if you like, girl-child body was already an intervention into public space from a, quite an early age. Uh, and I was deeply aware of being sexualized. And as I grew older when I became a teenager I was kind of using it also as a way of resisting to be objectified for example I um, quite spontaneously I went to a quite dangerous road in Jerusalem it, it really sways and it's like a high road quite a dangerous one and I was starting to strip and taking my clothes off and cars were just swaving stopping so the message was okay if you're going to look at my tits then you might kill yourself in, in the action really probably maybe my first kind of public intervention, uh, non-professionally. And then at that period, I started to wear my dad's clothes. So that's something that was always there. Um, my dad was feminine and very atypical of your kind of usual display of masculinity in Israel, which is toxic, to say the least. He's extremely gentle. And that's something that I had to always kind of reconcile and sort of make sense of in terms of my and I think I'm very grateful for that I think it really helped me have a much more nuanced understanding of gender rather than just saying good or bad men and women all that kind of thing yeah so specifically I wanted to honor that exchange with him in the film but also I literally wanted to understand what happened when he fell some some things didn't make sense and they still don't like because he fell from his bed, but why his care and Ishanti said that when she found him, he still had his shoes on. So why would he be in bed with his shoes on? Other questions were that my mum tried to sit him up and 
what effect that might have had on his injury. Um, it took eight hours of him being on the floor. Um, so th there's a lot of uncertainty. So I tried to um, reenact the fall and I did it a few times and quite commonly in Jerusalem, the marble floors and I, I, I fell and quite heavily bruised um, my elbow. So I could really get a sense of how, yeah, quite powerful that sort of falling into the floor was that he did. So this is, this is why I did that. I mean, there's, there's a lot more we could say about the structure of the piece, but I wanted to ask you a bit more about Joe Spence and having a work in dialogue with Joe Spence's work. You know, I'm guessing that because you made the film specifically for this exhibition and it was part of that commission, that Joe Spence's work was consciously on your mind while you were working. And I wondered, I wondered about that relationship. Yeah, so when I realised that it was going to be an exhibition with a two-persons exhibition with Joe Spence, I was so excited. And I looked back at my diaries that I've been writing my whole life, but as a diary when I was doing my BA in Sheffield, it must have been in my early 20s, and, and there was a whole section about Joe Spence because I was coming to terms with her work. And something of uh, rethinking, rethinking of some of the things she said and um, talked about and what I'm, I was kind of saying in that section of my diary as, as a very young person was that being well and being ill are not binaries they're just a continuum and both being well and being ill are sort of a continuum about which we form our identity and I think it's something moving out of that binary of I'm either ill or not ill has been something that's also along gender lines and, and, and other Kind of identity structures really informed my work uh, I realized and my thinking for around identity for a very long time so it was just really lovely to see that at a very young age I was thinking mm -hmm. about her work and probably being influenced by it and then to be in an exhibition with her. I just realized we should probably explain a bit more about who Joe Spence was for our listeners. I mean, Joe Spence was a British artist and photographer. She died of cancer in 1992 and she, she did a lot of photography after she was diagnosed with breast cancer. You know, she photographed pre and post surgery and drawing on her body. And she distributed this work often on just like laminated card, the idea being to give the work a lot more accessibility to make it widely distributable. So yeah, I don't know if there's any more you wanted to add on your relationship of your work with Joe Spence, but I just thought that we should, should clarify for listeners who she was. Yeah, she was also doing a lot of work with her partners, something that I've identified with as well. I was doing collaborative work with partners and, and ex-partners for a long period of time. Also, she worked in a community context. She did a lot of community and educational work around photography which I also identify with. She also did a lot of work with the inner child, kind of doing quite stirring and explicit photographs um, of her and her partner at the time, sort of in nappies and being very childish. And um, I do a lot of work with the inner child as well in recent years. And also her kind of, when she became ill, there's a lot of recalling of kind of regime of self-management that I think we're all experiencing, particularly during this period, but in general, and 
it's something that I was really interested in, in, in terms of diet, in terms of literally everything was accounted for. And it's something that I'm also very interested in, in terms of the politics of identity formation around those um, notions of self-management regimes, or kind of self-care in, in the neoliberal age. Yeah, I mean, that's actually something I've been thinking about a lot lately. I've just finished a new film called uh, Aphorisms on Self-Care, which was a piece I wrote last year in response to, like you say, sort of neoliberal co-option of this concept of self-care, which came from quite a radical background. And these ideas have been on my mind a lot as well, quite recently, partly because I got this commission to make this film, but partly because of yeah, the Black Lives Matter movement, but also the kind of reflection that's come with the lockdown and this sort of complete change in my sense of lived time and the way it's made the freneticism I guess of a lot of my own artistic production and the precarity of it catch up with me and feeling this this moment where you stop and then you feel this sense of exhaustion I think a lot of people are probably feeling that at the moment I'd like to move the conversation on now to your series uh, Revisiting Genesis which you made in I think 2015 to 2016 And it's a 12-part series and a feature film. Um, I haven't seen the feature film, but I have seen the 12-part series, which is available online at, I think, revisitinggenesis.net. But the series is is freely accessible online, which I think is quite interesting. And it covers uh, a variety of characters, nurses and patients, who are kind of undergoing this end-of-life care process. But they're doing it specifically in this context of the digital world and what the digital world and things like social media do to the afterlife of a person, of their memory and how they shape it. So there are lots of very interesting conversations in the film about things like jewellery that incorporates someone's ashes, about how particular Facebook, which is a medium that you and I have kind of kept in touch with and got to know each other a lot better through, how a medium like Facebook remembers it's dead and deals with the profiles of people who've died and how things like Google deal with the dead and even things like augmented reality tombstones with VR codes that when you're in the vicinity of the tombstone if you activate the code then it might play something like a slideshow of that person's life which is a theme that runs through the film so I'd like to spend some time on that series now so maybe we could just start off by talking about maybe what I mean, this is dangerously close to where do you get your ideas from territory, but I think it is interesting to talk about, um, (laughs) talk about maybe what the, what the origin of the concept was, because this conversation has been in the kind of public sphere for the last decade or more. But I think it's it's a very interesting thing to pick up on and develop at this point. So I'd like to maybe talk to you about what prompted you to do that. So um, just to mention that the feature film is, is just the 12 episodes. I've played together, so you, you haven't missed anything. Yeah, so what prompted me was a combination of, yeah, a combination of things. Uh, one was the death of uh, my brother that in 2008, which took a few years to come to terms with and then starting to think through and how, in, particularly in terms of what was left behind and how uh, us as family and individuals uh, were dealing with his uh, legacy. He was... Um, a writer and uh, a journalist and an editor of the weekend supplement of our it's kind of the equivalent of the guardian so it is very much in the public realm it's like a media personality and then how how does that correlate with a very personal experience of him as being uh, my brother 
so I, I began to be very aware of that around death, the um, extreme interfacing of the, the personal and the public. Some people I knew, artists I knew, were dying around me, with um, Ian White, for example, Monica Ross, and later Jose Muñez, and later on some others as well, like Paul Eaches, Ellen Cantor. I reached the age of 50 and I started to look at some old photographs and from my own archives and realized that in a sense I was always dealing with the same issues. I had a sense that I was very extremely fragmented but when I looked at it I thought oh no actually it's always been the same so I think it's that sense of integration that I wanted to convey in relation to reminiscence therapy which uses a slider as a medium especially for people with dementia to uh, narrate their lives. I'm very interested in the idea of narrating or narrating your identity and when that becomes politicising someone else starts to narrate your identity. All of that, the presence of death became very heightened in relation to Alexis Hunter posts on Facebook when from the hospice and she was talking about her deterioration but also talking about the legacy that she will leave behind and what, how she perceives that. So in a sense they can control over that legacy. Um, her feminist legacy as somebody who, not just me, I think has been very underrepresented as an artist. So yeah, I became aware of that and, and I became aware of the, the value that she found in Facebook and being able to communicate her death. Ian White was writing a, a public blog, a very open and very courageous blog about the process of his illness, death and dying. And so, so I became very, very interested in that in relation to fiction, in relation to narration information. And then I went to a symposium, which is, was a very emerging field of called digital death, of various posthumous services that are offered to us, which is an extension of capitalism into death. What can be extracted from us after we die in terms of digital wills, uh, intellectual property, online memorialization, etc., and other things that you mentioned. And I've learned a lot in this symposium. I made contact. I was quite kind of both shocked, excited by what's been going on in terms of the invasion of capitalism, hypercapitalism into the dead and what was demanded of us. And what was demanded of us is that we continue to overproduce after we die. We continue to be under pressure to be visible as we are as artists uh, when we're alive after our death as well. So in a sense, we never really get to rest. So I developed, if you like, an intersectional feminist critique of, of this area in the work. Having talked about some of the themes, um, I'd like to ask you one or two questions about the structure. Um, you know, as somebody who, you know, obviously kind of has done some film work myself, I was very interested in to what extent the dialogue was scripted and to what extent it was improvised. And as a related point, to what extent the characters in the film were being played by actors and to what extent people were playing themselves. It's a complex structure, but I'll try and simplify it. So the fictional story is a story of Genesis an artist who is withdrawing or dying or symbolically drawing, drawing as well. It's sort of, um, yeah, it's, it's really based on notions of artistic withdrawal or strategic withdrawal from overproducing in the cultural industry, uh, with particular emphasis on uh, women-identified artists who, who then become more, um, the, the kind of, the value grows, they get older or they die. So it was a kind of a response to that as well. That was uh, performed by a combination of actors artists, performers, some of whom I know, some of whom I have got to know through auditioning, general auditioning processes of, through the agents and so forth, so kind of professional actors, basically. 
I'm somebody who is an asylum seeker that I worked with in the past as well in a previous project. So kind of maintaining uh, a continuum with certain people that I've worked with over, over the years. And then these were scripted and rehearsed and the lines were learned. Then the other side of it was people with real life limiting conditions, so people who have um, illnesses or um, autoimmune conditions, life limiting conditions that they live with. And these were, we, we kind of spoke about, we spoke about those issues. So in a sense, it wasn't completely improvised. They were prepared for the interview, but the, the conversations themselves were completely improvised, if you like. And then Martin O'Brien is a kind of an in-between figure. So he, Martin O'Brien is a performance artist who deals with uh, cystic fibrosis in his work and has that condition in real life. He was playing the fictional character Bambi that was sort of semi-real and semi-fictional. So that when, and where the kind of tentative lines was drawn was that he was performing Bambi, which is somebody that has cystic fibrosis in a more uh, progressive form. So it's kind of looking into the future. It's sort of a form of a fiction that looks into the future and based on Martin's current condition. And that was, his character was the only one that was a mixture of both written script and improvisation. Yeah, I mean, the construction of the characters is really interesting. You know, there's a very moving scene of nurses over a cup of tea talking about being around people who are dying affects them and whether or not they go to funerals of patients and things like that. So I found that really fascinating. But I think what I want to pick up on here is, you know, the fact that Genesis, who you don't see, but the Genesis character is an artist uh, and has particularly done a lot of photography in her career. And there's some really interesting reflections in the series about this kind of idea of like art therapy and particularly for people with dementia or Alzheimer's and the ways in which this kind of art therapy and visual images can trigger certain memories. I think the, the fact of making Genesis an artist photographer speaks to the fact that photography was a really huge rupture in the way human beings remembered things. You know, this is what, 1820s, 30s, 40s, that photography is invented sort of nearly 200 years ago now. But, you know, this massive, massive rapture in the way people are remembered and create memories. So then that's really interesting. But, you know, also issues around energy and productivity and exhaustion. I was, I made my notes on the films when I watched them. And one of the things I noted down was a line of dialogue where someone says, every artist I've ever known has threatened to stop being an artist, especially women. So there's a kind of symbolic death with that, that my experience has been the same. Every artist I've ever known, including myself at some point, has thought I just, I might stop doing this. So I think that's a really interesting theme that runs through the series. And I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit more about why you structured it around an artist and the implications of you as an artist making a film about a fictional artist. Yeah, so Genesis, the character is based on me and a kind of my sense of foreseeing a wish to withdraw and looking at withdrawal as a sort of strategic soft resistance. Yeah, I think for, for minorities, it's particularly difficult being an artist because of precarity, because of issues of representation. So the 
the idea of longevity to keep going to keep going is a lot harder and this was something that I really wanted to express yeah being an artist is challenging in itself but then being a minority artist is particularly challenging and this is why people do withdraw why people want to withdraw yeah I wanted to talk about that and in terms of photography yes yeah, so, so Genesis slideshows are based on photographs that I've taken for example I was commissioned by Swindon to document uh, Marks and Spencer factory and then a Rover factory and some other factories in Swindon in the mid 90s and then uh, when I was making the work there was in Genesis I looked and I saw that the, those factories no longer exist so I think photography is very powerful in, as a tool in terms of yeah documenting loss so I kind of understood that the socio-political loss the kind of post-industrial social political loss in education and in, in other areas of our lives like community centers small factories all of that is the death of genesis so the theme of loss and the theme of social political loss as a personal loss is one of the themes that are running through and yeah and, and the relationship between precarity and withdrawal yeah and i think you know hearing you talk about photographing the marks and Spencer's factory in swindon which as you say comes up in the film I think there's something really interesting here about technology and cultural memory, not just of people, of course, the film is about this memorialising of, of people above all, but also of places. I and mean, I'm thinking of a hundred years ago, one of my favourite photographers, Yuzi Nache, did this huge project. He was very aware that Paris was a city that was constantly changing. And, you know, I guess Paris had that history of house modernization in the 1860s, where the city was basically rebuilt. Uh, but very aware of the fact that the city was disappearing and that photography could be a really good means of preserving a city and of preserving important memories of not just people but a whole sort of epoch that was built into the environment so i think it's really interesting these themes come up in revisiting genesis as well i mean obviously photography played a role in photographing the dead and particularly this uh, incredibly haunting images of photographing the dead with the living and those have been very powerful and, and those kind of are digital death photographs and this is coming back now particularly in North America where uh, with white kind of middle class death if you like where there's these rituals around photographing the dead with the living kind of completely kind of set design structures photographic structures around those um, rituals that are performed with photography and then and then also online there's a whole perhaps in a section that's called a the deep web where people filming the dead and people kind of the living kind of coming and approaching the dead and having some kind of interaction with them and there's a, a great kind of amount of popularity attached to those videos online as well so there's a real fascination with the idea of the afterlife being captured by technology and now we see that so much with for example in the entertainment industry there's so much around this idea of how technology is then giving us an, a bridge or an insight into the afterlife and what before maybe was seance or magic is now being like with posthumanism for example that's been attribute you know kind of how can we never die through technology and film is an interesting aspect of that because you know a development from photography the obvious leap from photography to being able to animate photographs into film uh, of course again another huge rupture in the late 19th early 20th century in how much we are able to remember people and record of them 
And one of the things that interested me about revisiting Genesis is the fact that it is this freely available work online. You know, as somebody who is very interested in and very passionate about artists, film and video, coming to this field of work in the early 2000s, if you didn't live in a city that was regularly screening this stuff, it was quite hard to see a lot of this stuff. And then through the 2000s and 2010s, more of it has become available online, you know, either getting put on YouTube or on, let's say, Ubu Web, where it's freely accessible. But it's still quite hard to see a lot of this work if you're not plugged into the kind of spaces where it screens and it's distributed. But of course, your work is an exception to that because you put it online. It's not behind any kind of paywall. So I'd like to talk, ask you, like, why you did that and you know how that method of distribution has differed to say when you've been screening the films with discussion and what that experience has been like yeah so i think throughout my career or my throughout my practice that there always been tensions around negotiating um galleries and commercial spaces around those issues and i've lost quite a number of relationships with galleries and being represented for those reasons because i always wanted my moving image work to be online inaccessible to people and uh, like you said to, to sort of break the divide between those in the know and those who, those who have access and those who don't the value of the digital as we've seen at the moment in people being in lockdown but previously when people literally can't leave the house for whatever reason or can't travel our movement and mobility is restricted is that technology does allow much more forms of at least to an extent of democratic access to work and this always been very important to me so that's one of my obvious sort of feminist strategies to decommercialize the work but at the same time in men in real terms that my work became commercial which puts me in financially in a lot more difficult place and in terms of the work being shown online compared with in physical spaces so my favourite part was um, when it was first released. So it was released by the, the Stanley Picker Gallery, where I did a fellowship where I was commissioned to make the work. And it was commissioned and it was uh, distributed every week. So every week it was released on a Sunday evening. And it was kind of exciting. And then I would get all these emails from loads of people about how they watched the work. So somewhere, you know, oh, I've had it with coffee on Monday morning, or I had it with my partner with a glass of wine on Sunday evening, or some people watch it as distraction from like admin work just all those kind of ways i was just i love that i love hearing how people watching it at home and yeah again thinking about how we do stuff now is becoming even more sort of relevant and how we'll probably continue to do that in the future to some extent so very interested in watching condition in general of how people watch work in physical space where it was possible like in stanley picker gallery or in the Rennes biennials in France last year that was kind of biscuit it was like an afterlife community center so there was really comfortable seating and various types of biscuits I mentioned sort of cheap biscuits that we all love very sugary sweet ones that mentioned in the film like custard cream and all that and tea so people could literally just sit really comfortably on bin bags and, and watch because it's a long piece and it's quite complex so I, I really like that aspect of it at the welcome, we couldn't have food or drinks, but what we had was these huge teddy bears that were very comfortable. And literally, teenagers, old people, like, I just loved going there and seeing people just literally falling asleep for long periods of time with a teddy bear, like couples or just on their own or families or 
like I just love the kind of diversity of people coming to um, rest as well as just seeing the work. There's a lot of, of engagement with the work, but there was also a lot of just resting near the work, alongside the work, which I really liked, which later on we brought blankets on as well because the temperature has to be quite low to preserve the work. So it's, it's a little bit cold to have blankets and have the teddy bears, which had huge arms so they could hug themselves with the arms and just be really comfy. And that was worked through with uh, David Korn, the architect that worked with us. And previously in other exhibitions, I had hammocks. And so, yeah, how do people... Where do people see this, particularly in relation to health as well? Some people can't sit on the floor, they need chairs. There's a lot of real consideration around bodies, physicalities, various invisible disabilities when it comes to viewing conditions that I'm, I'm aware of. That's really interesting. And yeah, to hear the sheer amount of thought you, you gave to kind of how the work was viewed in all sorts of different contexts is, is really fascinating. So as I said, all of the series is still available online and I really would encourage viewers to go away and spend some time with it. I mean, I, I watched them all in, I think, two sittings um, wow. and found them a real joy to watch and very kind of compelling and compulsive to view. But like you say, they're very nice experience over a longer period of time, even though they're quite short. It's quite nice to space them out. I'd like to move on now to a work you made in uh, 2013 called Party for Freedom and this was uh, I think there was a video documentation of the work there was also a DVD documentation of the work there are also live performances so this was a piece you made responding to the rise well the re-rise and re-establishment of the far right in Dutch politics Party for Freedom of course it sounds like an event it's also the name of the far right party led by Geert Wilders in the Netherlands and Wilders being a successor to the openly gay far-right politician Pim Fortuyn who was assassinated in 2002 and the filmmaker Theo van Gogh who was assassinated in 2004 and the sort of consequent rise of tensions in the Netherlands at the time at the sort of height of the war on terror I won't go into Pim Fortuyn as a figure too much here, but I would recommend that listeners go away and listen to the episode of Bad Gays podcast about Pim Fortuyn with Hugh Lemmy and Ben Miller. It's really, really good. But Party for Freedom interested me partly because that history, those themes really intrigued me, but also because it responded to a work by probably my favourite writer, the Georgian Soviet poet and playwright and artist Vladimir Mayakovsky. Markovsky is not as well known in this country as he should be full stop. Where he is known, he's known much more as a poet than a playwright, I think. And the play of his that you, you base Party Freedom on is probably his least known play. It's a play called Mystery Booth, which tells the story of a conflict between the clean and the unclean. Markovsky was a futurist as well as a supporter of the Bolsheviks. And he said in a preface to the 1921 edition of this work, when it's written, that in the future, all persons performing, presenting, reading or publishing Mystery Booth should change the content, making it contemporary, immediate and up to the minute. So I wondered if we could just start off by talking about why you took that Mayakovsky play and why you used that structure to explore these themes around the rise of the far right, like particularly in the Netherlands. Yes, maybe just for the sake of clarity, I'll just separate the two. So Party for Freedom came first and then in, in relation to Party for Freedom I then moved to work 
on a project called uh, The World is Flooding, based on Mystery Booth. And The World is Flooding was a collaboration with asylum seekers from freedom from torture and from the gay and lesbian immigration group, as well as individuals. There were a number of organisations that were involved in bringing together a group of asylum seekers and with them in relation to <coughs> the quote that you just read, I just thought, well, the clean and the unclean and, and what and thinking of policies of emerging from the right and the far right where the idea of freedom has been instrumentalised to actually close borders, sort of preserving the freedom of, let's say, gay people and women in the West, but really the, the messages don't bring in anyone. Yeah, for me, the idea of bringing something up to date in relation to Mystery Booth, the, the clean and the unclean, was to work with a group of science seekers and look at creating, recreating the, the play, which was performed at Tate Modern and the Turnbine Hall, based on producing self-knowledge, so producing knowledge of their life experience in the UK, in and out of detention centres, really being really being treated like criminals while they're really just been running away from persecution for the sexual orientation or gender orientation running away from war zones um, and then coming here to be some of them spend years in detention centers yeah that, that was a framework in relation to Mankowski and at the same time there was an exhibition at the Tate so that was part of our response to to that as well yeah it was really interesting to hear you talk there about Vladimir Markovsky and Mystery Booth and and your processes there. Can we talk a bit more then about how you devised Party for Freedom? Because it was a very sort of multidisciplinary project and a very collaborative project. So maybe we could talk a bit about how you structured it and who you work with. Yeah, so Party for Freedom, thinking back to it, was probably, I was probably at my height of my political rage, kind of looking at the disappearance of the left, <laughs> looking at the centralising of the left, looking at how the far right is gaining a more and more popularity in Europe and in the UK. And yeah, I was starting to get very angry at this period. And I think Party for Freedom is very much around that sort of rage. It started with a commission with Performance Matters, where we inhabited this kind of glorious, unused church in Sussex as a residential workshop and explored some of the themes that I've kind of researched and prepared around around Party for Freedom and, and the Dutch Party for Freedom and sort of the relationship, the, the co-option, if you like, of queer politics into the far right and also looking at the history of, um, let's say, the hippie movement and man and nature movements in Germany that then those same people travelled to kind of Hollywood and the kind of some of the origins of the, the hippie movements in and around the USA actually emerged from sort of fascist ideologies around the body and around yeah, the body and the machine and the body and nature. So all of that kind of fed into the workshop. It, it was a sort of quite exhilarating week of trying things out, learning, dressing, undressing, filming. Then those kind of films were made into um, an audiovisual. There was music commissions, um, there was Wolf, the post-punk band, Morgan Quintance that did some of the music, and there was 
modern classical composer as well that contributed to Isaka a quite rich musical landscape to the project and the album. And then continuing that, Art Angel commissioned me to work with the premise of the work into um, live interaction in the public spaces. So um, I worked with partly the same, but partly different set of collaborators. And we literally were, it was like a traveling circus. We kind of, kind of like traveled to people's homes, offices, pubs, anywhere, just not our departments and performed a sort of naked live intervention into the space with some of the video pieces included as well as some kind of a protagonist. And one of the interesting part of this event was um, that every time this kind of naked group of people was stealing, like kidnapping somebody from the audience, they were kidnapping them inside a carpet and putting them for kind of an auction. If the audience wanted that person back, what were they doing? How how are they going to get them back? And that, that kind of negotiation that was becoming very interesting. This isn't the space to talk about it because it was so complex. A lot of interaction around nakedness, around people's bodies, around, again, the clean and the unclean, the audience are dressed, the performance aren't you know, around domestic spaces, office space coming into people's homes, into people's offices. All sorts of unexpected stuff took place and sort of permeated and developed throughout as a set of responses to the work that was fascinating. Yeah, so that that was kind of an overview. Yeah, it would be interesting to spend a lot more time on Party for Freedom. Uh, and yeah. as I say, there's a lot of complexity that we maybe don't have the space for because we are running out of time. So I'd like to conclude by talking to you a little bit about teaching, because, you know, like myself and like many of the guests I've had on Suite 212 during these sessions, you know, you have a relationship with academia as a way of supporting your practice and you know, something that interacts with your practice as well and informs it. You know, but just before the COVID crisis really hit, I mean, we kind of all knew it was coming, but I was on the picket line at the Royal College of Art where I teach. We'd done an episode of Sweet 212 during the lockdown with Annie Goh and Kyron Jockin about the University College Union strikes earlier this year. And while it wasn't specifically part of their four fights, a lot of the conversations on the picket line were about the coming of the digital classroom and the implications of that, you know, and particularly of teaching art students, taking individual tutorials, but also group critical sessions where maybe eight of the students would get together and in a day they would spend 20 minutes each or so with somebody's work and criticise it as a group. But also things like critical reading classes I've been doing and seminars and more group based sessions. Um, I know you've continued to teach during lockdown and you've been working online. So I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit about what your experience of that's been like, you know, what maybe the positives and negatives are of it and how you feel about the fact that the COVID-19 crisis has almost certainly accelerated the more long term adoption of these like, online art teaching practices. Maybe I'll start by just slightly going back to Party for Freedom, just to mention that on the Art Angel website, there is an extensive essay by TJ Demos that gives a really great political insight into the work and uh, literally analysing every section of it. So I, I would recommend that in terms of biopolitics. Also, I've just published a collaborative text with uh, students from the Ruskin, and this is in the Alter Italia website, so people look 
in the Ottawa Italia website is a project that, sorry, it's a text that it's basically like a survey. So students were writing, that was again two weeks, I think, into the lockdown. Students were writing, they just describing, I've just asked them to describe very, as a matter of fact, the living conditions in the lockdown. And that was based on a survey that they've self-organized themselves as a way of negotiating with the school where we were all just hit by the crisis and not quite it was not clear how what's going to happen and how we're going to respond they created this kind of multi-vocal document that describes the effects of the lockdown and uh, i find it a fascinating document just reading individual accounts of people's living situations and how it affects the practice and then reading it together as one document you get a kind of i think quite an interesting picture from a perspective of a young probably early very early 20s students an art student Yes, personally, and and I think I would be saying that is the case for most people who are teaching art. We haven't stopped working since the lockdown. We didn't have a break. We didn't have an Easter break. We've been working throughout. I mean, I'm a point five, but we've been working throughout on a daily basis trying to really figure out uh, remote teaching, learning, and how to respond to that. And yeah, we've been teaching online. My experience so far has been that there's a huge sense of loss for the students. There's a huge sense of loss of studio spaces, loss of the sociability, just interacting with each other. And that really cannot be replaced by remote learning. Some aspect of remote learning, obviously, work structurally. I mean, we hold the same structure together. We look at people's work and we talk about it and that works. Talking about the future is very difficult because we can get into many kind of predicting things, but... I think, and what, what we're looking into in terms of, and, and I'm speaking as an artist now, what we're looking into is, is probably a future where blended teaching, different modes of physical and remote teaching will take place. I, I personally think that the idea of the art school as we know it, I've really just been incredibly grateful to the notion of the art school as a space, physical space with studio where people can actually hang out. It's like, it's not that I never not appreciate it, but I really... I've reappreciated it during this time that we have an art school. You know, there is this thing called an art school. So the future of the art school, I think, will be affected in the same way that science labs will be affected, where groups of people have to spend uh, time in a physical space in close proximity. I think different kind of modes that perhaps, for me personally, suit my practice and interest in terms of non-studio-based practices, um, or conceptual practices, Issues of mobility and accessibility will become more possible through remote teaching. So there are positive aspects. There are things that allow certain students and certain artists and practices and tutors to be fully expressed through remote teaching. And I, I don't want to forget that or dismiss that. I mean, I don't have a studio. I can't afford a studio. I work without a studio. So, you know, and I want to talk with people who live in completely different life to me far away so I'm interested in that as a model there's so many dangers in in what's coming ahead so many threats to the art so many threats to the art school so many threats to material practices physical kind of materially based practices 
on the other side of it, there's so many threats to the idea of kind of crowd controlling young people in spaces, directing them in this direction, other direction, coming in different times of the day, just further like testing, uh, testing temperature, just further surveillance and crowd control of uh, large bodies of students that is, is alarming where, you know, surveillance, culture and health kind of um, starts to work together. Yeah, so I think that there are kind of real dangers at every corner. And especially when we get in big corporations, a lot of universities working with teams. This is, so we're working, we're using software that is, um, you know, officially corporate software used by universities. So those kind of, kind of educational takeover by tech giants is absolutely a core concern so th- th- there's really a lot to consider and it's it's an alarming landscape but also i think we have to be really positive and remember that some amazing things have emerged during this period um in terms of people practices thinking relationships and also some there are some aspects to technologies that we can utilize as forms of resistance in teaching and learning, especially in relation to creep theory, people that don't have access to, you know, can't be take full part in education. And creep theorists have been talking about all these issues for a long time. And now we can embrace it in, in a different way. So it is a good time for creep theory in that sense. So yeah, it's it's a minefield of a landscape that we we have to negotiate. Yeah, and it's really too early to know what the world is going to look like on the other side of this, what's going to be temporary and what's going to be permanent. Like you say, I think there are lots of positive opportunities for change. You know, I did an event last night online through Studio Voltaire and a friend of mine who has fibromyalgia wrote a very interesting response on Facebook detailing all the ways in which this event would have been inaccessible to her living in uh, Portsmouth and not being able to travel to London for such an event given her illness and yeah there may well be some positive changes as well as negative ones and I think we need to be alert to the positives of this situation very alert to the negatives and ready to fight if necessary I think as we were before the lockdown started. Yeah in relation to the unpredicted future of remote learning also in terms of freedom of movement of people who well, it's getting harder and harder in terms of visas and all sorts of restrictions for people to move freely in in the world and also obviously in relation to the environment and um, people's carbon prints and which the, the art world is a big user of I think we can see some positives. Um, we've been talking for quite a long time now Arie, and I think we should probably conclude the conversation so I'd just like to say a huge thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much Juliet. thank you so much for all your brilliant engagement with our work. It's been a real pleasure and yeah I hope to see you again on the other side of all this. Listeners thank you for joining us today for another Sweet 212 session. We have interviews lined up with the Dutch collective Metahaven and the artist Nada Prulia, who represented North Macedonia at the Venice Biennale last year. We'll have one or two more shows lined up for the rest of this first series of sessions. You can, of course, find us on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash sweet-212. Subscribe to us on Patreon, patreon.com slash sweet-212. Follow us on Twitter at sweet underscore 212. Find us on iTunes and on Facebook. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Thanks a lot for listening. Take care. Goodbye.